Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Michael Lucas, creator and writer of The Newsreader, about preparations for season two of the ABC Australia drama. Blue Ant Media's Carlin Stout on her programming priorities for the Canadian wildlife network Love Nature and Yeti's Sarah Stevenson on the Welsh Indies move into true crime with CBS Reality. The Newsreader is a 1980s set drama following the relationship between an ambitious young TV reporter and a star female news anchor, drawing on real-world events at the same time and dipping into the ABC Australia news archives. Created and written by Michael Lucas and produced by Melbourne-based Werner Film Productions, maker of Emmy-nominated shows including Dance Academy and Ready For This, the series has been picked up around the world by the likes of the BBC, Roku and Viaplay. Now, in the midst of production on season two, Lucas spoke to Michael Picard about what to expect, the genesis of the original, and how the newsreader blends fiction with real-world events. I'm Michael Lucas, and I'm the creator and writer of uh, The Newsreader, and I'm actually, uh, yeah, zooming into this from the set of season two. We're in the studio, we're shooting all the news desk sequences for season two, and so there's a whole crew positioned on the other side of the wall um, shooting into the night. And how how's season two going then? I mean, um, a bit of pressure perhaps after season one was what, the, the most watched series on, on ABC in 2021, so, uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> well, very luckily for me, um, they commissioned the development of a season two before season one aired, which I'm really grateful for because it meant that I got time and months to just sort of imagine, you know, what I wanted, what the team wanted without knowing how people were going to respond. And sometimes that can be liberating, I think. Uh, but it's been it's been great. I mean, I, I particularly love season twos of anything because you, you know, you know who you're writing for and we had such an amazing ensemble and now their voices are in my head and I just couldn't stop thinking about interesting territory to take all the characters so i really loved it and i hope i really hope it matches the first season <laughs> we're giving it everything we've got yeah and and you mentioned there you're filming all the the newsroom scenes so just give us an insight into that kind of schedule and and what's the production like when you're actually uh, making the show yeah well actually it's the news desk scene so more the um studio rather than mm-hmm. the offices uh yeah and they're they're really big really big days um we we often are shooting uh you know eight pages or more a day which is a lot and we with those sort of scenes we you know we shoot them in our full uh, cinematic cameras but then we also shoot them on old beta cam cameras as well so they can look like 1980s television so we basically do we've got auto cue set up um it's weirdly a very functional news desk set but then on top of that we're layered in all our drama cameras as well so it's it's <laughs> there's a lot of technology a lot of vintage technology and a lot of new technology um but amazingly things haven't really we haven't had too many hiccups this time it's been running really smoothly and yeah the cast uh, the cast love it because um what we tend to do is stitch sequences all together and emma the director often likes to block it as a big long sequence so it almost plays out you know like a play basically and they they get to perform for you know sometimes six minutes at a time unbroken uh and you might remember there's some key moments in the first series where steadicam is sweeping around anna torvin stan reed on the desk and all of them were shot generally 
literally is really one unbroken shot. So there's a lot of um, adrenaline and momentum and it's a, it's a good atmosphere. And and I guess just for people who may not be quite as familiar with the show as, as we are, um, I mean, just can you just introduce it and, and tell us oh, yeah. about, um, you know, what goes on in the, in the newsreader? Yeah, so uh, the newsreader is set in 1986 in a um, commercial television newsroom in Australia, in Melbourne, Australia. And I would say at its heart, it's a story about a relationship between Helen, who's a very well-established, famous newsreader, but is longing to be taken seriously as a journalist and is facing quite a brutal power structure above her. It's her relationship with uh, Dale Jennings, who is a junior reporter, but desperately, desperately, desperately wants to be on the desk. And the two of two of them get thrown together and form a, a kinship, a pretty unique relationship. And sort of together, they rise up, they become allies. And, and in the midst of that, they're covering some of the most sort of iconic stories of the era. So in season one, there was the Challenger and Chernobyl and um, Halley's Comet. And um, and then we've got a bundle of other global stories for season two. Yeah. I mean, that, that's noticeable from, from the off that each episode is, is obviously based around a real event. What was it about that kind of structure or, or format of the show that you thought would be a good grounding for the relationships in the newsroom that we would then follow through the season? Yeah, well, actually, funnily enough, the first draft, I didn't actually have the sort of iconic, famous real life stories. I, I had just done it with sort of generic stories. It was still in the 80s, um, but I had sort of chosen things like, you know, the development of automatic telemachines and things like that, things that were general. But then when I took it to the broadcaster, and the broadcaster here is the ABC, they have this amazing news library. And it was actually the executives there that said, would you consider dipping into our library and playing off the events? And I, I actually really loved it because we stick to a real life timeline and it becomes a bit of a plotting puzzle because you, you've got all these markers that you know you have to hit and you've got to sort of weave your fictional characters around. And so it's a challenge. But for me, it's a, re it's a really fun, enjoyable, really compelling challenge to see how I can take these real life events that have their ebbs and flows that I can't change. And how can that provoke, you know, different aspects to the relationships and different turning points for the personalities. So yeah, I feel like it in sort of engages both sides of your brain and, and, and I, I really enjoy it. Although at times, at times it is a bit maddening. Definitely. And is there, is there a method in, in the events that you, you pick up on in each episode? Do they key into emotional moments with the characters perhaps, or, or how did you kind of, you know, like Challenger, for example, in, in episode uh, one and uh, Haley's Comet in episode two? I mean, d did they stick out for any particular reason other than they were obviously momentous news events? Oh, well, I gravitate towards the ones that I can actually remember. Um, <laughs> clearly, I was a kid at the time, but um, I've, I vividly remember Challenger. And I think I I was always going to start it with Challenger because I think it's really the first news story that is really lodged in my brain. I always remember those plumes of spoke in the sky. My mother was crying. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a combination of things. Some I picked just because, you know, they are so, like, if you're looking at the first half of 1986, there's Chernobyl right there and it just feels like, how could you avoid it? But then other times, um, there are also times where we cover stories that aren't so date specific. Like we'd have an episode about the AIDS crisis. And of course, I had the capacity to place that anywhere. And I, I sort of deliberately positioned it to get maximum emotional impact for the characters, I guess. So yeah, it's a combination of things. Sometimes sometimes it, it, the story is really prominent and, the, and it's a famous one and the date set. And I just have to think about what it can do to the characters. But then other times, other times I want to take the characters into an emotional place. And, and yeah, there are some ongoing story arcs like the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. And in season two, we're looking into the heroin crisis as well, where you can, you can, you do have a bit of the capacity to position that to really deliver something for the characters. And, and in terms of the characters, I guess the, the title is obviously the newsreader, but um, certainly for uh, as much as of the show I've seen so far, it's very much based around Helen and Dale 
the kind of veteran and, and the junior kind of and their relationship together. I mean, how would you pitch those two characters together? And is there a protagonist or are they, would you say they're both front and center as we follow the show through the, through the season? Yeah, I see, I see them as, I see it as dual protagonists. Absolutely. And we flip, you know, perspectives back and forth, but it's anchored around the two of them. Yeah. And I have, I do often get asked, but which one is the newsreader? <laughs> and I guess in my mind, it's about the position of the newsreader, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that he's always wanted um, desperately. And it's, it's something that she is, but feels conflicted about. So that I, I, that's how I saw it. But I realized, I realized it has, it does make people call, sort of naturally just question, which one is the most prominent? Yeah. But that relationship is the heart of it for me. And, and I think in some ways I sort of looked at it as um, she embodies a lot of sort of stereotypically, I guess you could say stereotypically masculine qualities in that she's ambitious and that she's uncompromising and determined and all those sort of things, but she's punished for them. Uh, and, you know, he struggles to fit into that masculine ideal. So I kind of liked, they occupied a, a slight flip on gender stereotypes, which is what I found really compelling about them. And the, and the fact that it's in, set in the 80s, I guess, and, and with Helen in particular, mm. a woman, like you say, in a, in a traditional man's world, perhaps in a male leading role and, and having to fight that glass ceiling all the time to try and get where she wants to be. So what did you kind of want to say then about women's rights, perhaps, or, or that sort of uh, the lay of the land in, in that period of time? Yeah, well, I mean, I just think female newsreaders, and they really came to the fore in the 80s. There weren't, there are a few in the 70s, but it was in the 80s that they started to come in. And they're fascinating because on one level, they represented progress and modernity, and, and they sort of were a model of how women could look in the workplace and everything. But on the other hand, they were completely objectified, and they were sort of caught between these two things. And, and really, I think when I started working on it, I don't think I fully appreciated the kind of pressures that women in those positions were under. And it was actually through speaking to people. And when I first started researching this, it was sort of, I guess, 2015, 2016, it was before Me Too. And I just couldn't believe the stories that I was hearing about the sexual harassment and just the attitudes and the reaction from audiences, the scrutiny, all the calls that came in, the questioning about their weight. It was a really masculine environment and newsroom and there were these few women that were there and they really had an incredible challenge to forge forward and and yeah I mean I obviously was sympathetic to them but more than anything I just saw the potential for huge drama there I mean they've really got they're just facing so much and they're they're under pressure on so many fronts and that was just in terms of storytelling really compelling for me and and then her relationship with Dale then I mean what would you just say about how that develops through the first season and and because they're they're kind of brought together with a, a sort of a, a medical emergency on, on Helen's part. Mm-hmm. Dale comes to her rescue and that kind of forges their bond that we see in the early mm-hmm. episodes. What would you say about how their relationship dovetails as they both have their professional goals that they're kind of seeking at the same time? Yeah, well, I, ho- I hope that when people watch the first season, it's a bit surprising in the way that it evolves. There's a lot of ambiguity in the relationship. They have a real kinship together and a connection, but the way we've depicted I hope that it's, it's not entirely certain whether it's a great professional relationship, it's a great friendship. Actress Anna says sometimes that she, when she's playing it, even feels a slightly maternal vibe towards him, but then it also, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but it does become romantic. Mm -hmm. But then there are complexities to that as well. And I guess I felt like we really wanted to dive into the the ambiguity of their relationship. And I, for me anyway, I feel like there's been lots of key relationships in my life that were ambiguous in terms of whether, you know, the mix of platonic versus romantic and it, it often isn't clear cut. And I was just really lucky on this that I was working, the actors in particular and the director, Emma Freeman, who is a huge part of the storytelling of this show, we were all really um, attracted by the idea of 
showing a love and a kinship that didn't entirely fit into any particular box. And in some ways, they're a brilliant team and in some ways they're made for each other, but there are core things about them that mean they don't fit into a conventional box. And so that's why for me, it's a, been such a great television, always for a television relationship. You want everything that's pulling them together and you want these key things also dragging them apart. And it's always so tricky, particularly in a conventional romance in TV when you have to like introduce obstacles. But in the case of Helen and Dale, there's innate aspects of their personality that mean that they're wonderful together and also why they can't ever be the conventional, you know, couple that the world wants them to be. And so we just love sitting in that, <laughs> in that space. So as, as the creator and the writer, were you working a lot with Anna Torv, who plays Helen, and, and Sam Reed, who plays Dale? Were you speaking to them a lot at the start of the series about this character, their characters and, and that ambiguous relationship that you wanted to kind of develop on, on screen with them? What were kind of those conversations you had with, with those cast? Absolutely. And 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 with uh, it's all directed by Emma Freeman, who um, I've worked with for years and years and years. And yeah, the, the process was really collaborative with, um, with all of us in terms of, you know, Helen and Dale evolved a lot in the lead up to shooting and then all throughout the shoot. And in fact, even in terms of where they were going to end up in the series, that was something that we, the tone of it and and how the final notes would play out was something that we kept returning to and returning to and returning to the whole way through as we discovered it. But I mean, Anna and Sam and with Emma, obviously, are just, they're really astute storytellers in their own um, right. And they have great instincts. And I think the key thing with them, I think if you read my early drafts, the script, the relationship would be perhaps a little bit less ambiguous. Things would be, certain aspects of them would be flagged more heavily earlier, but their instincts were to to make it less clean cut and to, you know, not to define it so heavily and just generally to say less. The other thing about them, I am very verbose and Anna and Sam are such remarkable actors that they can say a hell of a lot without words and prove that again and again. So oftentimes on set, you know, it's about, it's about losing dialogue and you know but we it's very collaborative we speak about it endlessly you know emma speaks about it with them i speak about it with them we're emailing back and forth there's always a lot of emails and everything like that and 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 i would say that the characters are just sort of this sort of ongoing conversation between all of us where it's really a mutual creation and and i guess before you get to that stage then when you're actually sitting down and writing the scripts i mean what is it like for you to write the show is it a a complex uh, process marrying fact with fiction or or do you lock yourself away and, and sort of emerge you know bleary eyed with with six finished scripts or is it a, a room situation how do you a, how yeah. do you work uh, it's a combination of things actually there's definitely a room like i'm mm. not the only writer on it I'm, i've got um uh, on first season there was kim ho and nikki aiken and jonathan gavin that also um were writing with me um and i and also a script uh story editor deb um oswald it's sort of a combination of both it's an unusual one because you, you need to do a lot of research into it's very research driven for obvious reasons and so I, most shows I've worked on in the past have been relationship dramas where you kind of rock up to the room with only very broad ideas. But in this one, obviously, you need to really be embedded in uh, in all the details of the story. So it begins with the research, getting the archive footage, just figuring out the timeline and everything. That's all locked in first, the timeline and the and the events that I want to cover. And then, you know, it's, so it's bouncing. It's just constantly bouncing back and forth between looking at the timeline and then talking about the character 
characters where the character arcs should go. And yeah, I would say the weave is is tricky. It um yeah, we definitely needed plenty of plotting days and we needed space in between the plotting days to just keep coming back and, you know, back and forth and trying to figure out a way so that it all sat together naturally. So so by the time one of the writers or yourself go away and write the script, you have a, a quite a comprehensive outline and, and story yeah. to do to kind of fill in with the dialogue and, and any other notes that you want to add in. Yeah, the plotting is pretty detailed. By the time we're off and writing our breakdowns, it's we've really gone into yeah <laughs> a fair <laughs> bit of detail. Yeah. Having said that though, the emotional, you know, the emotional arcs and storylines, they did tend to evolve a lot, even within the timeline structure that we had set. Like that that was always an ongoing discussion up to and including like on set and then even even to a certain extent in the edit suite we're still honing those emotional beats and moments and obviously it's set in the 80s and and uh, you talked about the equipment that you use to give it an 80s look i mean what's the challenge of of making a show set in the 80s is it more than obviously just having people wearing you know 80s style costumes what's what's what goes into actually making the show and and making it feel authentic on screen well it's actually often it's about avoiding cliches um because one thing that emma the director was very set on is that she didn't want it to look like a standard um, nostalgic piece about the 80s. So she went back to films made in the 80s. I mean, broadcast news is an obvious one, but all those films like Tootsie and everything like that. And she looked really carefully at the color palette. Um, and, you know, there's often the way the 80s is presented, it looks like the MTV version of the 80s. But actually, when you look at it, of course, you know, of course, in the 80s, a lot of people were still wearing their clothes from the 70s, mm-hmm. you know, as people tend to do. So she was determined to go back and really create something that looked like it had actually been made then. Uh, and she, you know, she also, uh, the DOP actually has vintage lenses on all of the cameras. And yeah, and then there's the technology element in it, I, I thought was going to be an absolute nightmare. But it turns out that was okay, because there's a lot of very delightful and efficient nerds that have kept a lot of vintage gear and pride themselves on having functional vintage gear. There's a lot of people that have a lot of equipment in garages, and they're all on online forums. And so that aspect has actually been really joyful and fun, because I feel like if someone has held on to a vintage beta cam camera all these years it's like the best call they've ever got in the world to find out that a tv show would love to use it i was just gonna say i mean it's it's not only in australia the show's proved popular is it entertainment one has sort of sold it around the world not least to the bbc here in the uk i mean what is it about the show you think that does appeal to mass audiences around the world if i knew i would replicate that with every show (laughs) i've been really thrilled and surprised it's been so funny because i've been so consumed with season two i was obviously aware that it was coming out in the UK, but I wasn't fixated on it or whatever. And it's really been delightful, especially it's just been some amazing press and so many like writers that I'm obsessed with have been commenting about it and everything. I don't know. It seems like it's interesting in the UK because in Australia, it was a week by week rollout. And in the UK, there was that aspect to it, but it was available all on iPlayer. And that seemed to go well because I do feel like it's a show that um, you really understand what it's about when you get to the end, the last episode. And clearly in the UK, there are a lot of people that zoom through it and got to the last episode and had a reaction to the last episode and that sort of really affected the way that people spoke about it but um i don't know i, I it seems like I, I, it's the combination of I, it seems like people have really invested in Dale and Helen which I obviously love but at the same time they also love seeing all those news stories so there's the nostalgia factor and then just these fresh characters I'm also sensing from a lot of the response from the UK that people seem very excited that it's not some sort of crime drama and that there's no dead bodies <laughs> clearly there must be a spate of that over there because I see that again and again and again how nice to have something where no one's dead yeah we, we do love a detective you know in this mm. country, and there seems to be a, quite a few of them <laughs> 
<laughs> just launching yeah. brand at, at the moment. So um, it's, it's certainly, you know, refreshing for me. And, uh, you know, being a journalist, I always enjoy watching kind of newsroom programs, uh, you know, and uh, not this one, you know, especially it's, um, it's always nice to get a look at, you know, those high pro- profile newsrooms and uh, remember why you oh, yeah. wanted to do it in the first place. Uh, oh, me too. I love, I love all, like pretty much you can't go wrong with the newsroom drama for me. And it doesn't matter whether it's Anchorman, broad comedy or press gang or broadcast news or the newsroom or anytime. I just am a sucker for it. I just love anything said in the newsroom spotlight. It's just such a compelling environment, I think. No, absolutely. Definitely. And and then on that note, I mean, what can you tell us about season two? Um, you know, what, what's in store for people now around the world who will want to tune in? Um, well, it's, it's a year on uh, and Dale and Helen are still very much at the absolute heart of the series and they are now the golden couple of news and very heavily promoted team but of course as viewers of season one would know the you know there's there's their personal lives are a lot more com- complex and I think we could also say you know the world is just ready for them to get married and do all <laughs> of that but they're just trying to figure out what they should be to each other and in the midst of that of course they're dealing with uh, they're dealing with elections and they're dealing with the stock market crash and you know the separation of Diana and Charles and and all those iconic events are rolling on as they sort of continue to try and figure out who they should be publicly and and privately. And we're actually, we're, I, we've introduced a lot of new characters in season two. And I think this is why it was so good that I got cracking on it before season one came out. Because once season one came out, people seemed to really love the ensemble. And if it had come out, I might have been just think, okay, just, just keep the ensemble that I had and don't add anyone. But as it turns out, yeah, we've added quite a few major characters. The CEO finally comes into it and we've got a, a very sort of brash uh, variety show host that's a very sort of key role and we meet you know the family of some of the main cast and so it, the world is uh bigger in season two i think and and you know considering the circumstances around season two were you already looking ahead to a, a third season potentially <laughs> oh, i i look <laughs> as as i'm at eight week eight of, of 11 i'd be lying if i said right now i'm that fixated or not but i don't know i mean i i love the world and i love the characters so we'll just have to see but also we've you know we have this huge cast that are incredibly incredibly in demand and you know so many of them I mean Sam's in Interview the Vampire Anna's in The Last of Us Chai Hansen's in Night Sky it's just they've done so well since the show came out and it feels like it was a bit of a miracle to get everyone back together for season two and so I don't know whether the lightning will strike a third time but if it does you know I'd be thrilled but um we'll just have to wait and see Love Nature is a wildlife network operated by Canada's Blue Ant Media, available around the world via a variety of platforms and as a standalone free ad-supported streaming TV channel. Global General Manager Carolyn Stout spoke to Clive Whittingham about the kind of shows Love Nature is looking to commission right now, its growing array of co-production partnerships, ambitions in the fast channel space and tackling the topic of climate change. How are things with you? What are your sort of priorities? What's on your slate at the minute? What you're excited about? Uh, it's a great time for us at Love Nature. We are growing every day, um, expanding into new platforms. Uh, I would say, you know, we have a really exciting pipeline coming out. Um, I'm always focused on the double wow factor when I think about my pipeline. I want to deliver visually stunning content, but I also wanted to have unexpected stories and new behavior uh, showcasing in wildlife and nature. Uh, We're really focused on, I would say, three areas when we're commissioning right now. 
One, uh, new and exciting approaches to wildlife storytelling. A couple projects that we have in the pipeline uh, that kind of speak to this are Planet Shark, which is a co-production that we're doing with National Geographic in the U.S., And it's showcasing new scientific discoveries from some of the world's leading shark scientists and really revealing dramatic and surprising behaviors about sharks. Uh, Second project uh, in this area, How the Wild Things Sleep, which is a co-production with WDR in Germany and CBC in Canada. And this is really unpacking animal sleep behaviors in a new way and delivers on this mesmerizing kaleidoscope of different sleep strategies in the animal kingdom. Um, It uses new technology like um, microchips, GPS tracking, night vision cameras, and perpendicular sensors, all all to give this different perspective. The second area uh, in our kind of pipeline that I'm really focused on is premium tentpole projects. Uh, And and this is to get our affiliates excited, to deliver to our viewers what they they want on the quality side. One project in this space that we introduced around Sunnyside was Evolution Earth, which is a big co-production with PBS. uh, And it's from the multi-award winning Passion Planet. Um, It's shot in extreme locations around the world. It's an ambitious project. Uh, and it really showcases the resilience of the natural world. Another premium tentpole project that we have coming up is Chasing the Rains, which is our first co-production with Sky Nature. And it really looks at um, the most majestic unspoiled areas of wilderness in Africa and the iconic African wildlife that builds their survival around dramatic rainfall. And it's the follow-up from Mara Media. They did Stormborn for us. And so they're also doing a trilogy uh, story with uh, Chasing the Rains. And then Love Nature will continue to be focused on building returnable series and franchises. Uh, We did this with Orangutan Jungle School, which we went to two seasons with, and then we had the spinoff Becoming Orangutan. Uh, We have two series of Malawi Wildlife Rescue. And leading up in the next couple months into MIP, we'll be actually announcing returning series of four original productions. So this is an area we continue to lean into. We hear a lot about you guys in the sort of FAST and AVOD space, as well as having a a linear channel. Can you talk about how that strategy is evolving and how it sort of uh, how you work to it as a, as a commissioner yeah it, it's it's a fun new space to get into uh, we were fast first in the US which means we didn't go on a traditional linear broadcast cable platform uh, and now we're available on a dozen of the top free streaming platforms. Listen, I think viewers want more content, but they want it in a cost-effective way. And so it's allowing us to reach entirely new audiences, younger audiences sometimes, 
and we we know that advertisers are going where the audiences are and we see a, a big growth boom for advertising in the fast space uh, as well do you commission specifically for do you have like fast originals or is it is it all sort of the the shared content from your from your linear feeds how does it how does it work yeah right now we're beginning to explore the opportunity of potentially launching premier projects on our fast platforms the space is getting more competitive more crowded. Uh, you really have to punch uh, above with something different. So I, I think we will be premiering originals on our fast platform soon. And also looking to our fast platform partners for original co-production opportunity, where we do something tentpole level, something premium with them. Are there current trends that you're seeing in the wildlife and natural history programming um, genre that you're looking to tap into with your with your commissions at the moment? Yeah, I think there's actually four trends that, that we see and that we're leaning into. One big, glossy, beautiful natural history told in a really modern and immersive way, something with new pop and new style. And you'll see this with Evolution Earth, which really leans into this kind of fresh approach of this conversational podcast narration. Secondly, I call it the new, new, new trend. New cameras, new science, new storytelling. Um, So we we did this with Bee's Diary, with new technology that took us inside the beehive we did a genre blend between drama and natural history, uh, which had a whole new storytelling feel to it. And really, you, you got to follow the individual bee. Uh, Planet Shark certainly leans into the new tech and new science uh, in a way to look at sharks like we've never seen them before. And Ocean's Greatest Feast, which we released just this past June for our Ocean Devotion Week, uh, explores the sardine run in an entirely new way through the perspective of a individual sardine. And it helps kind of reframe what the sardine is, not just food for predators, but really they play a big role in helping to preserve our planet. And then I would say third, big talent continues to be a trend. So connecting um, big talent with uh, productions is not only a way to draw audiences, but it also, they tend to lend this special storytelling style to productions. Uh, we did this with Stormborn and Ewan McGregor. We did it on Ocean's Greatest Feasts, uh, connecting Graham McTavish. And I thought his read was f- fantastic on that. Osprey Sea Raptor, we used Sean Bean. Uh, and we're just about to announce uh, a big name talent attached to Chasing the Rains. Uh, so that'll come out in the next couple months. I guess the the tech side is um, is how you innovate in this space, right? Because the chances of finding a new animal behavior on film now must be sort of million to one because there's been so much natural history filmmaking down the years. It, it's tech and night filming and drones and things like this that move the genre on more than trying to find new animal behaviors. Or am I, am I just lacking ambition there? Am I wrong? Well, you'd be surprised. I think with the climate change and changing environments, there's constant constant change of animal behavior as they learn to adapt and 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 change with that um, so I think you'd be surprised there are there are moments where there are new behaviors being witnessed in response to climate change 
the climate crisis. This is obviously the, a big story this summer with um, fires and droughts and record temperatures. And we just we see it everywhere. And we've seen it here in London big time this summer. How do you go about telling the climate crisis story to a mass audience or, or do you steer away from it? Where does it fit into your commissioning mission? I think it's virtually impossible not to include a climate message in our programming. Um, everything in the natural world is responding to climate change. So it's part of our shows in one way or another. I also think we're always trying to find ways to speak to younger audiences because this next generation is really a passionate generation about actively educating themselves on the topic uh, and they want programming that speaks to them. So there's kind of three ways that I think about um, that we've found success with in broaching this topic. Uh, One is featuring stories of individual animals. So thinking and caring about a specific individual animal character makes stories about environmental change much more personal, much more intimate, much more impactful. Um, We did this certainly with After the Wildfires, uh, and we'll do this in Evolution Earth as well. The second would be finding new storytelling devices. So in Evolution Earth, we're exploring this kind of conversational podcast narration, uh, and, and we feel like it invites the viewers into the discussion in a little bit more poignant way. And then I think third, constantly conveying hope and optimism into the topic. Evolution Earth will will really highlight uh, nature's ability to adapt and to change and to be resilient. And after the wildfires, which was a production that we did um, last year, uh, showcases the frontline workers in the aftermath of the devastating Australian fires. But it also showcased the regrowth that comes after. So I think constantly leaning into hope and optimism in the topic. Rather than sort of lecture and and hector people i guess because you know, it doesn't want to be homework does it exactly exactly is it difficult to sort of to draw that line because obviously it's a serious issue but the you know there are parts of the audience that are climate change deniers that say you know climate's always changed and you know like you say you are trying to entertain your viewer and not hector them at the end of a long day of work is it is it tricky to sort of to draw that line and strike that tone how are you how are you finding that challenge i don't think it it is hard i think viewers also want to be trans transported to places that they haven't been before and to hear new stories. And I think that's that's key to our brand at Love Nature is to show those positive stories so that people care more about it. They can go to other channels for the doom and the gloom and, and the tough investigative stories. But at Love Nature, it's about inspiring people to care about the world. Uh, natural history programming, often big budget and long lead times. I noticed you had a couple of co-productions in amongst the, the shows that you told us about earlier. Are you Is that a way around the sort of coming recession and economic issues that we're we're told to expect do we see that you know declining subscribers and the ad revenues and things like that do we see that being an issue on a on a genre that can be expensive not always obviously but uh, it, it struck me that this genre might be affected more than some of them yeah that's really interesting i think love nature in particular is really well positioned to deal with kind of the looming economic recession and the constant inflation because we already co-produced a lot 
Um, we knew that we wanted to do ambitious premium programming and that co-producing was the way to do that. Partnering with like-minded broadcasters uh, helps us to continue to provide our viewers with high-end content. Um, I also think that partnerships are really important during this time. Uh, our partnership with Sky, uh, which we started in 2020, where we entered into this five-year content deal with Sky to launch Sky Nature, it's really helped us uh, continue to be able to do the, the bigger ambitious projects that we want to and also get our brand out and exposed to an entirely new audience. So I think partnerships and, and how we partner with others will help us kind of weather the economic woes. Um, and like you said earlier, getting into the fast space was fantastic for us. I think ad supporting streaming television will be an important component over the next year because of the economic pressures and people wanting to find cost-effective ways to get their entertainment. Um, so it, it just was fortuitous that we were also kind of there at the beginning of FAST. How producers looking to sort of pitch you and, and get involved in, in ambitious projects that will require perhaps co-production, how does that conversation transpire? How does it happen? Do they, is it good if they come with a project with 80% funding and say, do you fancy doing the other 20% or do you want to come in earlier in the conversation with that? Does it vary? How, does, how do those deals get put together? Yeah, it really varies. I mean, some it, it's great when producers come to us and say, hey, we have X amount of money already from this particular broadcast are fantastic. But we're also beginning to develop ideas ourselves and then bring them out to market through Blue and Inter International, looking for additional co-financing partners. And that's been great because it allows us to really author the point of view of the piece for Love Nature, uh, really have our own thoughts on the editorial before we're going in finding partners, uh, which strengthens our brand proposition, I think, in the long term. So it, it goes both ways. One of the um, things that I heard a lot when I was talking to natural history producers and commissioners during the pandemic was that they were keeping the show on the road by using more local crews than than traveling so that they could dodge the travel restrictions and actually that could be an advantage in the long run because it would upskill these local crews they could be used after the pandemic it would reduce the air miles which obviously is a, a bit of a contradiction in this uh, genre has that happened or have we gone back to uh flying around the world um to to film these things no listen I think we were already beginning to think about and using local crews prior to the pandemic. There's something that makes using a local crew feel more timely or relevant or bring an authentic voice to the project often. COVID definitely accelerated this trend, and it was amazing to see companies rise to the challenge and then share these local contacts amongst each other within the industry. It was exciting to meet new talent. It was exciting to increase the local roster. I think the inflation and the looming recession will continue to drive this trend because people, companies need to find cost-effective ways to travel and travel prices are just going up and up. So there's so many benefits to using local crews. It saves on the carbon footprint, as you said. It saves money uh, on the production. But it also provides access to new stories and, and new perspectives. 
we we used local crews on chasing the rains. Mara Media sent one producer down to Kenya, and that producer then sourced local producers to help make that production. And we really embedded for a long time with those local crews. And Off the Fence used local crews in Brazil and Argentina in the production of New Kids in the Wild. And I give a special shout out to Off the Fence as they did a fantastic job with this um, and almost entirely shot by uh, local crews. Finally, um, any further advice that you would give for producers coming coming to pitch you? What should they be bearing in mind before they sit down for a meeting with you guys? Story, story, story. Uh, We are constantly focused on the craft of story and how uh, to tell iconic wildlife uh, stories in a new way and to um, really be focused on the narrative aspect of our shows. It's not just about the visual wow, but it's how we tell them. Cardiff-based Yeti moved into true crime with its first commission for CBS reality, The Truth About My Murder, building on its experience making specialist factual shows such as The Great Big Tiny Design Challenge for Channel 4, Charles 50 Years of Prince for ITV and The Asian Welsh for BBC One Wales. The Indies, set up in 2014 and part of Rondo Media Group, produces TV programmes across various genres spanning arts and history, documentaries, features and factual entertainment. Its foray into true crime comes as audience interest in the genre refuses to wane and streamers commission show after show exploring the dark side of humanity. But Head of Development Sarah Stevenson told C21FM Yeti is determined to avoid the sensationalist tropes of horror porn as it aims to develop a series of returnable true crime formats and one-offs. What sparked Yeti's decision to move into the true crime genre? I love true crime. <laughs> so as a development, it was definitely a personal interest of mine. Uh, before I joined Yeti, I'd already made 70 hours of true crime TV. So it's not it's not my first time in the true crime radio. Um, but I think in particular for Yeti, we're always making different kinds of factual TV. That's what I kind of love about Yeti. And I think what um, makes us great at what we do is that we're not a one-trick pony. We don't just make one kind of telly yes we make factual tv but uh within that i think we have a huge range of kind of content and kind of borrow bits from each of them to really make our stamp on it um so true crime was just um something that we were yeah why not let's give it a go you know we've done history and features and kind of like daytime formats um so it was just the kind of next thing that we were really keen to try like having done lots of true crime before um i, I know true crime rates it sells um so you know as, as an indie um that is uh you know we love to make good telly but we're also a business you know we have to make money (laughs) and um true crime is something that does really well and that you can make hopefully like a returnable format you know that's kind of what we wanted to do in particular with this true crime um idea that we're launching with cbs is you know it's a returnable format or there's elements in it that can return and that was kind of key for us both is something that's personally interesting to us the true crime genre but just as a business model to kind of to make something that's sellable and that can return um is always the dream are there any particular benefits perhaps like 
into a new genre, aside from drawing in new audiences. Yeah, I think moving in to to a new genre that um, that we haven't done. You know, some people might say, you know, is is it risky? Is it going to be successful? Should you do what you know? And I think for us, we don't really see it necessarily as a new genre. You know, it, it's it's another kind of specialist factual genre, and at the heart of it is the same that's at the heart of all the programs that we make. You know, it's great access mm-hmm. to experts and to stories, and it's how do we package that specialist factual content that's at the core of all of our shows that we make into a way that is more accessible for as many viewers as we can for us that was what was key really is okay true crime isn't for everyone how do we make a true crime series that is for more people that will still be as successful and I'm hopeful that's what we've made with truth about my murder true crime shows you know like you said very profitable very popular at the moment um, so kind of how are you looking to freshen up the genre and make these kind of standout shows? Um, so I think this is how we look how we look at all kind of, you know, genres when we're going in something new. What can we bring at Yeti? How do we um, make our mark in something that is really popular, that is really competitive, you know, as true crime is? And for us, it was definitely about making a true crime show that wasn't sensationalist. I think mm-hmm. there was a lot of kind of horror porn out there and it has its yeah. place for some people that enjoy that. But that isn't what we wanted to make. And I think definitely some of my team are a bit squeamish um, so personally they just didn't want to make anything like that so I think for us it was how do we get some of those true crime tropes that keep people hooked on their seat that they want to play armchair detective that they're fascinated by finding out more without it being gory that was kind of really important to us and I think we've done really well with truth about my murder where we're actually kind of bringing in details of forensics which is you know by its very nature usually quite gory it's hugely popular in drama you know like silent witness and all these kind of like you know like murder a drama series so what we did is actually looked at the tech that was out there you know what ways can we visually bring this story to life on screen and there's something called this digital animatage table that universities use to teach forensic that's used in um, court cases when they need to kind of uh, visually show what's happened to a body you know for juries whatever it might be um, it has been used in sort of specialist factual but more in sort of ancient history to kind of mm-hmm. show mummies and things like that so this is amazing you know really visual teaching kind of legal tool that's used um, where essentially it creates a yeah digital 3D body right before you that you can peel back the layers of the skin to um, like the blood vessels to the bone so you can really kind of analyse what's happening beneath the surface without it being either some horrendous prosthetics or something that would be gory or just disrespectful towards a victim and their families and yeah. um, so that was kind of the key for us I think in unlocking these great kind of forensic driven stories on screen and sorry just to clarify is that technology I know it's being used in in the truth about my murder but is that the technology we use on the actual live victim's body or is it a reconstruction no yeah so the way it works with these tables and I think that's also what's quite great about them is that they are digitally programmed I mean it's kind of brand new for telly we've never really seen it used in truth yeah. before but they're digitally programmed with a certain set of bodies so there'll be uh, like various bodies of men women of different races you know sexes all that kind of stuff so essentially you can get something that looks similar enough to the victim you know if it's a woman you know like Caucasian woman in their 50s there'll be something along those lines that's already kind of programmed in but it does look like a digital anatomy book like the anatomy books we all had as kids where it kind of all folded all the way out it's like 
like that, but um, interactive. So it's really not gory. There's not blood. You're not seeing blood on their hands or anything like that. It feels very clinical, but in a way that then I think allows you to get the kind of takeout you just wouldn't be able to get otherwise. Um, Are there any kind of particular trends that you're seeing in the true crime genre that you're wanting to utilise or avoid? Or, you know, obviously that perhaps Um, being one of them. Yeah, I think for us, I think often with kind of true crime now, there is a temptation, you know, to sensationalise. I think Mm. there is, you know, everyone loves a headline. It's how we sell a lot of the things that we do in TV. But I think, you know, it has a time and a place and it probably isn't in true crime because of all the reasons that we've said about, you know, not being respectful Mm. to the victims or it being kind of horrible, which isn't what we're about at Yeti. So I think, you know, that was kind of really important for us to kind of to to avoid that. But it was looking at how we've done with other programs that we've made is how do we bring tech or advancements um, that have been made in kind of other um, areas, not necessarily for telly. You know, this tables come from something that's used in teaching mm-hmm. primarily. How do we then kind of use these tools that already exist to tell our factual stories better? That's, I think, is what the key for us is with this crime format, but other crime formats that we're also developing. And so would you say that like the forensic kind of slightly informed perspective would be kind of the right sort of tone that you're going for? But this one in particular was forensic and not mm-hmm. I think necessarily all of the ideas we have in development are kind of forensic led, but they definitely is the kind of like investigative sort of strand and also looking at cases where it might not necessarily be murder I mm. think that that's kind of a bit sounds kind of revolutionary <laughs> but we are looking at true crime cases in particular where it isn't just murder because I yeah. think looking at whatever it might be from if it's kind of like scams or if it's you know effects of social media or if it's you know bigger things about coercive control or mm. you know there's so many different areas of true crime that um, that isn't really spoken about as much as it should be mm. because everyone goes for the horror porn the, mor- the murder you know mm. the kind of the ultimate um, and so I think that's definitely what we're looking at as well is how do we broaden that world of true crime mm-hmm. whether it is through tech and ways of telling stories that might normally be quite gory like forensics or things like that or is it kind of you know repackaging true crime mm. in a slightly different light that you know there has been kind of popularity with that as well recently yeah, I think there's a real trend of like doing series kind of almost in lifetime uh, which again is interesting but obviously there's the implications on cases and court proceedings and things are there any thoughts around how to tread carefully you know and sensitively I guess and, and ethically <laughs> with just yeah what are your thoughts on those kind of considerations you know whenever we do true crime or you know we have done some stuff where there's active investigations it's always critical and essential for us that we have support of the the victim and the victim's families Um, and that's something that we take very seriously even in these kind of cold cases that we do is something that um, should be built into everybody's protocols you know about handling communication with them and just you know how you kind of treat their loved one stories properly so that that for sure but a big part of how we work at Yeti is collaboratively so mm-hmm. in the kind of active cases that we've previously looked at in development or that are working on um, often it's even with the families because it's often mm-hmm. the families themselves that are kind of pushing that their you know that their family's case is heard or whatever it might be or that they want more information or that they want this or that and they just feel they're not getting the answers or the support they want for whatever reason that might be so you know I think as often as we can it's actively collaborating with them so then there is never any of these issues of of taste or are they happy or not because they're right alongside with you that's kind of key in all the things we do at Yeti if it's archive driven or whatever it might be kind of yeah to involve the people that we're making the show about and so to tell me a little bit about the truth about my murder can you talk a little bit about uh, obviously it's sold and commissioned to CBS yeah so um so it's with CBS and Boat Rocker that we've made um this and um, I've made a lot of crime in the past for Sam my previous company so I sort of knew how mm. CBS worked um, and I think 
it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's about, I think you have to be flexible in development and in in independent TV production these days. Mm-hmm. I think to think that you can go to, I mean, it doesn't exist like that anymore, that you go to like the three main broadcasters and they're going to give you all the money that you need. If only it was that simple. You know, the I think the landscape of making TV mm-hmm. has changed irreparably, you know, with the streamers and digital channels and even how terrestrials budgets have changed, you know, privatization of Channel 4. It's, yeah. The landscape's completely changed. So I think we have to change along with it. And we have to be ready to make deals in different ways to make telly happen. And um, CBS and Boat Rocker have been incredible to work with. And, you know, I'm hopeful that it will be the first of many shows that we make with them. Mm -hmm. But it is being like that, you know, we have to make telly differently these days. And I think if you don't get on board with that, then you're probably not going to be around very long. That's just my opinion is. But I think people love to think in TV development that we all sit around going, oh, wouldn't it be nice to make this show? (laughs) Yes, we do some of that. And that is fantastic. But it's also a business. We have to think how we're going to sell it, how we're going to make it and make it the way we want so it's just being flexible and 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 just in terms of this show in particular has Mm. that collaboration that partnership enabled you know again greater funding greater distribution is is there any like direct impact just yet yeah I think I mean um so by you know kind of getting Boat Rocker on board with CBS it allowed us to have you know additional funds to make the show how we wanted to um 100% and it's great that people like CBS are open to doing that as well because not all channels are I think more channels are having to be like that but it's really sensible conversations around a table where CBS say these are the rights we need we're happy to give up other ones if the money's right so that then we can make the show that we all want to make yeah. and that was a conversation where we boat rocker and um you know it's it, it's existing relationships that cbs have done previously and i think there'll be more of that kind of stuff that we'll see you know with mainstream broadcasters and even between you know like the terrestrial broadcasters and streamers can you confirm whether or like you've got any other shows on the development slate at the moment under the true crime genre yeah yeah we have um so we've got a couple of things um that we're working on with kind of terrestrial broadcasters and with streamers um and i think for the most part they're in that kind of space that i was saying to you that is um, not necessarily murder but definitely it's kind of true crime in a different way and that's something that we are really interested in seeing how how does that play out and what can mm-hmm. yeti's kind of voice on that be we've got some of those on the slate at the minute but our slate is really buried we've got you know like a whole host of stuff on the go at the minute but I'm yeah, yeah I'm confident there will be some more true crime coming down the pipeline as well <laughs> fingers crossed yeah. and any that you can kind of speak about in more detail at this stage or is it still not at the minute way? unfortunately just yeah. on the true crime thing just because it's again it's like partnerships between like terrestrials and streamers that's a bit tricky yeah. with navigating um but I can say it's like it's like a range of stuff so mm. our um true crime um series we just made the truth about my murder is like a 10 part mm. series it's all closed apps so what we're mm. looking at at the minute is doing some more kind of true crime in that kind of box set strip as well as kind of like bigger single docs as well something that we're looking at um as, in addition to these kind of you know like the more i suppose kind of classic you know yeah. true crime single hours but i have got other stuff that we can kind of that i can mention that i suppose shows the range of the stuff that we do so we've got two big feature docs which is kind of like a new thing for us at yeti that we're doing so we're making one for sky arts about spike milligan which is an incredible archive um which is going to be great 
Um, and we're also making a big feature doc for Red Bull about a famous female athlete. So two very different kind of worlds, but sort of shows like the range of things that we make. Um, so we're making those. We've also got lots of projects on the go at the minute for Channel 4. Again, mm-hmm. some of them will be announced shortly, but I can't, I'm not allowed to tell them yet. But um, and a real kind of range of stuff as well, which is exciting. And then we've also got a CBBC documentary that we're making. So we do wow. everything from kind of kids TV through to true crime. <laughs> So it is just like with the true crime that we're doing is just finding um, what our voice is in it and how we bring that kind of specialist factual take out to the front, whatever it might be. And um, how do we make it as accessible and as entertaining for viewers? Because um, you know, entertaining doesn't just mean it's got to be like fun or amusing to watch. It can be stuff that thrills you. It can be stuff that, um, you know, brings you to the edge of your seat. It can be stuff that educates. And I think it's kind of tap into all of those different aspects. Specialist factual take out can and offer and bring yeah. different audiences in yeah so yeah. i think our truth about our murder is yes it's a true crime show but it's going to bring people hopefully to the format that might not come to true crime normally they would think mm-hmm. oh that's too sensationalist for me it's too horror porn i'm not coming to watch mm-hmm. it but actually might watch something like a silent witness or might watch mm-hmm. a forensic crime drama or you know all the big dramas on bbc yeah. and tv um saying oh, i'm quite interested in that or someone that likes science but might not yeah. come to true crime it's trying to say well there there could be something in this genre for for you if you kind of give it a go mm. and you think then that the genre slightly needs rebranding to just be able to include all of these different facets yeah I think it does in a way it's, it's hard <laughs> because I think when people say true crime I think um not for me but because mm. I love kind of all aspects and definitely do see that true crime can be so many things mm. but I think on like a true crime EPG or if you've got people saying you know true crime channels and you ask mm. the general public what would they think true crime was yeah pretty sure they'd say it's murder pretty sure it would say that it was retrospective cases and often I think people would say that it's not expert driven you know mm. sensationalist stories for the sake of it and I think it's definitely sometimes yeah. true crime is that I'm not saying it isn't you know often when we've had stuff sometimes from America there is a different kind of taste level I think sometimes with what viewers want not always but just I think historically that was kind of the way it was yeah and I think that yeah true crime could do with a facelift and so yeah um is the intention as well to kind of work with streamers as well or will it be mainly broadcasters and terrestrial partners we'll work with anyone um yeah. I think you know in terms of like our strategy as a company streamers are hard to tackle you know I've made shows uh true crime even in the, in the past yeah. I made inside the world's toughest prisons for Netflix and it's competition is fierce at streamers because they have the whole world and I think sometimes the expectation whether they say it isn't I mean I would argue that they still they still want a lot more from a development team than a terrestrial or kind of like these digital broadcasters do Um, and because there are enough companies out there that can do it you know they expect it from everyone whether it's you know you know in the past I've heard people that have sent full pilots that have been edited in and you know we we're a very successful India like thing you know we're a busy development team Mm -hmm. but you know, we don't have a room full of people sat there just waiting to do true crime stuff or whatever it might be. It's just not realistic. Yeah. Um, so um, our target is definitely at the minute is looking towards those kind of like the terrestrial the digital channels. But if there is scope to work with kind of streamers, 100% yeah. you will, or kind of co-pro deals to be done, we just want to make the best telly we can. And we'll yeah. make it with um, whoever wants to make it with us. But I think, yeah, just from a personal point of view and my own experience is that it just requires sometimes a lot of work to get it over the line. Are you seeking rights or existing IPs to anything 
um, whether it's books, articles, etc., that could be linked mm-hmm. to the genre or of anything that you've just recently acquired. We're really open to stuff like that, Yeti. And I think I think not all companies are, but mm. we um, again are realistic about how much work we can do as one team, you know, as mm. one group of people. We can't be everywhere at once. We can't be reading everything at once. So yeah. if people have got great ideas or have access to archive or books or uh, whatever it might be, yeah. then 100 percent we're open to working with them. We actually did a um, a single doc that went out. Um, last year that was called uh, The Traitor King we yeah. worked on with Andrew Lowney so he's the author of the book and we sort of timed it so that it was great for the channel for Channel 4 it was great for him so it was a joint of joint benefit because it was press for everyone more noise around it and it worked you know um, we had kind of overnights of 1.9 million on a specialist factual doc on Channel 4 which is amazing yeah. Um, so yeah so 100% we do a lot of, and are actively doing a lot of that with talent agencies as well getting mm-hmm. them to come to us when their talent have got books about to come out because yeah. sometimes you know that helps spark an idea or actually you know can be the basis of the why now everyone wants a why now to be doing something if it doesn't come through that approach then what 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 would you say is the other approach to kind of receiving those stories or you know is it something that you're actively going out and looking for or kind of yeah talk a little bit about yeah both so no 100% we do both people will come to us with ideas or um you know we we have a really busy kind of development team where um we kind of use our different skill sets to kind of to get the best characters and content that we're looking for so like amongst our team you know I have people that are great at looking for access so whether it might be those kind of classic Obstock characters that um, that everybody always wants you know the kind of the evergreen mm. stories people that are great at that also we have some um, people that are great at kind of like historical research or looking at when anniversaries are or looking through the kind of the latest scientific report <laughs> that's a big part of, of what we do is I think just being nosy that's kind of what I look for in all the people that, that join our development team the other thing I was going to ask was just back, focusing back on the truth about my murder was yeah I know it's like due to launch I think September 22nd um but yeah I wondered like whether you'd how you were anticipating that being received one in line kind of with your new you guys finding your voice within the genre um and with this kind of text slant yeah I mean so we spoke um with CBS in particular before the show was made with their kind of focus group mm. um so it's something that CBS do a lot of um and actually all channels do I think sometimes development teams just don't ask you know as many questions as perhaps we should but um, all we know there's never enough time sometimes you know because telly is such a fast-moving world but yeah so with the truth about my murder Sam and, and Jess at CBS you know put it to their focus group to say we know that they like Dr. Richard Shepherd. He's an expert, you know, home office, um, ex-home mm. office forensic pathologist. Over 23,000 post-mortems under his belt. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And that's always key for CBS viewers, um, is having a real expert at the heart of the story. So we knew that that was something that was kind of a big tick. The yeah. tech was definitely something new to them. But feedback yeah. we had had from, from CBS you know and just kind of our own personal steer on true crime is that we didn't want to make anything gory they didn't want to watch anything gory they don't want you know recon that was kind of blood filled they wanted stuff that was either slightly more clinical Mm -hmm. if there was a way to tell it interestingly or that was more impressionistic so we gave them both so Mm -hmm. it's the setting for the spine of the show is Dr Richard Shepard in his scrubs as if he's about to perform a real post-mortem and he is but the (laughs) post-mortem is on our digital anamitage table so he's talking Mm -hmm. you through it as if he's in the room with the real victim's body 
everybody, which is amazing of making Mm. you feel like it's really happening there and then and sort of piecing together the victim story, but from the victim, Mm -hmm. you know, letting them speak from beyond the grave. That's his thing. You know, he always says, you know, the victim's bodies never lie. And all the cases we picked were essentially where the killer is trying to rewrite the truth about what really happened. And Mm. that's what Dr. Richard Shepard spent his whole career doing is saying, well, they might have said that she jumped or that uh, they fell or this or that. And actually this body's telling me a different story. And so it was bringing that Mm. to life for the viewers of showing them how he he works, why he's an expert at it, why they're going to be interested in in his point of view. So that's the spine Mm. in this kind of like clinical autopsy room. And then we go into our impressionistic recon to help kind of, you know, piece the story together. And that was really important to us to make it feel as high budget as we can, you know, so Mm. that it it does Mm -hmm. feel, you know, as much as the characters can look like the people in it. So it feels like you're watching the real thing, you know, tying all those things together again, always respectfully. So that it is impressionistic, not Mm. people saying things and stuff like that. You don't need to put words into victims' mouths. And then it's just those personal voices. If it's from the police that worked on it or the journalist or however, just to kind of bring it all together so that you feel that momentum of kind of Richard unpacking what happened to this victim to ultimately reveal what really happened. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 